Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, a return of volatility. Why some say we're in for a rocky stretch for stocks, the investment committee sizing up the market's next move. Joining me for the hour, Josh Brown, Shannon Sakosha, Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss. Check the markets here. Uh, we are in the green. Uh, we're hanging in there largely. There's the S&P 500, good for a third of 1%. Dow's good for a quarter of a percent. NASDAQ's higher as well. Ten-year note yield 432. Um, I think that's the story of the day so far, Weiss. We're mostly hanging in there. Yep. Maybe Apple has something to do with that, up near 2%. Got a positive note out of Wedbush on the uptake for the iPhone 15. Um, uh, amidst a lot of naysaying about where we're going from here. Yeah, look, I, I think Friday's action, which, as I interpreted, trade down on the Reuters article about Taiwan Semi saying, hey, hold off on sending us more technology equipment. Certainly, more it certainly hurt tech. I mean, the it, tech it trade did. was down off that. It did. And, and if you look at how it hurt tech, I mean, you had Meta down 3%. They don't buy semi equipment, really. Maybe they are now developed their own chip. But the point is, is that it shows that we're in shifty sands of a high valuation still in the market, and it's not going to take a lot to get down. Now, we'll go to Wednesday, and Wednesday, look, I don't think Powell's going to change his narrative, which is that, hey, we're going to be data-dependent, inflation's still stubborn, rates can stay higher for longer. So that's a controlling narrative. But where it gets really interesting and where it will be test for the market as we go into earnings, because you set the bar very high. Now, we're a little bit away. We're about a month away from the heart of it, but I think that's where it's going to come out. What are earnings going to be? What are companies going to say? And are the delayed impacts of this tightening cycle finally starting to hit? My bet is they are, so I'm more cautious on the market. I've been saying for the last few weeks, and I remain so. All right, so, Shan, we got the Fed decision on Wednesday. We know that, and we're not expecting you know, fireworks out of that. You do have, you know, history suggesting that the weeks after a September expiration can be a little dicey, like the many weeks uh, after that happens. That remains to be seen. As I said, we're largely hanging in there. And by the way, history also suggested that September is a lousy month. Well, we're halfway through and the S&P is only down one in a one point four percent. The Dow's down a third of one percent. So it could be a lot worse. The question is, is it going to get that way? Well, there's certainly some risks ahead of us, Scott, in this last couple of weeks of September. Um, we obviously have the UAW strike, which, although limited in scope in terms of the facilities at which uh, they are striking, it certainly could have some meaningful impacts, not only in sort of near-term G- GDP, but also longer-term in, in terms of creating yet another foundation for higher wages. We also have what's happening in Washington. You know, we, we haven't talked a lot about that. You know, we, had, we averted the shutdown earlier this year. 
here, we had the Fitch downgrade. But now we're moving into a period where we've got 12 outstanding appropriation bills. We're talking about the potential for the consumer to start to slow down. We're seeing the resumption of student loan payments. So there's certainly a lot, even outside of market technicals, to create some volatility as we're going in these last couple of weeks of the month. I think we should feel comforted the fact that we're hanging in there as well as we are with these outstanding issues. But I think that we should be cautious as we look forward over the next couple of weeks, absent you know, the day-to-day -day information that we're not hearing from companies right now, which could be seen as a boost as it was in the second quarter. You know, Joe, I'm looking at a headline just crossing. Macy's to hire more than 38,000 seasonal positions. So amidst all this talk about what's going on in apparel and whether the Consumers getting tapped out. Treasury Secretary Yellen telling Sarah consumer spending remains quite robust. Um, you still got a ways to go to paint a really, really negative story about where this all is heading. Absolutely, without question. And Macy's probably getting ahead of getting workers because it's so difficult to get the workers right now at this point. Um, I, Scott, I just think there's a lot of negativity that's embedded in markets overall. You began the show talking about the seasonals. Um, everyone that I've spoken to today who's observing the market, and certainly myself included, you're, you're pleasantly surprised with the reaction overall. The price of oil at $92, we're coming off a triple, uh, quadruple witching, actually. And early this morning, you had stocks like NVIDIA, which were down significantly. The SMH was down significantly. We reversed that. SMH is in the green. Apple is strong. So I think you treat... Uh, what we're witnessing today as an example, if you get weakness over the next couple of weeks, I said this on Friday, I believe you want to be a buyer because I think the setup for the fourth quarter is a strong one built upon the chase for performance and to your point, the economic picture not deteriorating as expected, just being good enough. Josh, this is the real question whether you know any weakness will be bought. We've been discussing for weeks as to whether the tone and the tenor of the market had changed from a buy the dip to sell the rip. We've been a little choppy lately, a little more volatility expected to creep in, but that remains a central question and that will be the decider of ultimately where this market goes from here. So of course I couldn't tell you definitively, no one else could either, but gun to my head, based on all the stuff I look at, I don't think we're out of the woods. It's nice that we're bouncing today. You got 35% of the NASDAQ names above their 200 day. That is a very low reading. That is the lowest since June. Um, in June, actually, I think it marked the bottom. Uh, but I think we have more work to do this time. Uh, about 41% of, I'm referencing the NASDAQ now, by the way, because I think that's where the action is. About 41% of the NASDAQ has declined two days in a row. Um, that is well above the average 23% reading. You just have a lot of stocks giving back ground. Um, you had a really amazing AI-driven rally in April, May, June, July, and I, you know August. Uh, I, I don't think we fully digested everything that we're going to digest. Is, is my bottom line. But this is what I want to say: the the, mo the main thing, even if the sell-off isn't over, even if there's going to be more of this type of volatility, on a, on the scale of anything more than this year, volatility overall is extremely low even on the worst days that we've had this year. I want you to consider this. The max VIX in 2021, which by the way was a, a good year for the stock market, was 37. Last year in 22, the highest we saw the VIX at was 36. And that didn't last long, although we did spend a long time with an elevated VIX. 
This year, the highest we've seen is 26. The historical average VIX reading for any year is 21. We've been below that 156 out of 178 trading days. So 88% of the time this year, we've been below just an average VIX. So even if I tell you, I don't think we're done with this kind of uh, dip or correction or give back, or whatever you want to call it, this is not a tough market to, to survive. It really isn't. And if you have oil stocks on the sheet, you're, you're okay with what's going on right now. Like if you're somewhat diversified, you're okay. Most of what's going on is NASDAQ related. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's the way it'll stay. And I think there are plenty of other places you can be that are counterbalancing that. You know, speaking of NASDAQ, give you an idea, Weiss, of just how it's been for the last many, many, many months. NASDAQ's down 2% in September. That's the worst month since December. Okay? Yep. So you've gone nearly a year, certainly close to it, with as the most being a 2% decline in the NASDAQ. And that's what we're currently riding on. But again, the question is, and some are suggesting today also, like Adam Parker, that that still looks okay because the Magnificent Seven still look okay. And that's where the real test of the dip buyers is going to be. Um, and you're seeing a little bit of it in Apple. Again, maybe some of these early reports about uptake on iPhone 15 orders and the like. Um, NVIDIA needs to stabilize a little bit from where it's been. It was down 3% last week. Um, it's still flat, let's say, over a month. So Josh is right. I mean, this is where the critical action is. Yeah, w without a doubt. I mean, that's what's driven the market. And um, some of those names that you point out are still, you know, either Dow or S&P stocks. So, so it is critical. Look, here's why I'd say even down 2%. In September, the average declines about 1.3, 1.4% for the entire month. That's nothing, nothing. when you consider where these stocks that, have and come that's from. And that's my point. Yeah. Right? So, that's nothing. Right. Now, I expect as we get into October, October is the most volatile month. You have more 5% moves in October than any other month. But guess what? The month fin finishes up higher. So who knows? But what's at play here? We're not going to hear Powell talk about because they're not getting involved in UAW negotiations. But that's inflationary. We really haven't seen the spending from IRA come in yet. That's inflationary. UPS, is that filters? That's inflationary. Now, why is it inflationary? Not because this group of workers is making more money. It's because who's going to pick up the bird for that? Ultimately, the consumer. So that's the issue. And then what's the government going to do about refilling the reserves? How long will they go? They missed that window. And with you see, when you see good support because supply demand characteristics of oil pushing it above 100 and possibly staying there for a while. I know we've heard that many times before. Analysts come out and say, okay, I'm we're going to 200. Stuff. Forget about that. That's all inflationary. I don't expect Powell to talk about that because he doesn't look at those single data points. He looks at labor, and labor's gotten expensive and continues to move up. So that's where the volatility continues. For the month, look, who knows how it turns out. But let me address the Macy's hiring. If you take a look, last year, it was 40,000 seasonal No, they said it's hired. consistent. I get you. They said it's right. consistent. However, just given where all the concerns are, right. if they would have said we're not hiring even half as many as right. last yep. year, you could understand that. You get your I, I arms could, around that. I could, but from a business standpoint, if they don't have those associates in place during their peak season, 
The other nine months mean nothing. If they don't have them in place, then they miss it. So they have no choice. They're a prisoner to the calendar, to Christmas, to the holidays. So they have to hire. Sure. If they had a more dour outlook right. on things, though, maybe they wouldn't be hiring 38,000 people. You just don't know, especially Could for be. a company whose stock has been highly challenged. Um, Could be, but I, I really don't think from, from a business strategy standpoint, they have a choice. They've got to go all in on Christmas, and that's what they're doing. So I wouldn't read that as indicating that demand is picked up. I think the consumer is under a lot of pressure, and that will continue. I'm not saying that demand has picked up, and that's a sign no, of it. No, you're seeing the optimism. I'm saying that yeah. demand hasn't deteriorated to the well, degree yep. that they're able to hire 38,000 people for their seasonal yeah. period. I mean, I get, I get not what broadly, you're saying. Not broadly. What's going to be interesting is what are the wages they're going to have to pay those 38,000 people. This is significantly more than last year. So, so it, it remains to be seen. I think the, the consumer, not only because student loan repayment, because the interest rates are stubbornly high, it takes a while for consumer to get in. You know, used to it, that that's going to pressure the consumer, which is two thirds of the economy. Hey, Shan, you know, looking at oil prices, uh, since we're talking about the consumer and this being one of those possible headwinds, if oil, which by the way hit its highest levels of the year, there it is above 91, pushing 92. Ed Yardeni, quote, with oil prices spiking again, we can't help but think of the 70s. We're concerned enough about the oil price spike, the ballooning federal deficit, to return our subjective odds of a recession before year end 24 to 25%. And that's up from 15%. Do we have a new headwind now that we need to worry about? Absolutely. I, you know, there was a lot of, of, of rationale, I guess, coming into the second half of the year that we were going to see this kind of push higher, if you will, in oil prices based on the perception of the, the soft landing or no landing scenario. But there's a lot of technical factors, Scott, that are playing into the fact that we're seeing these energy price uh, increases. And structurally, there's probably not much to do to ease those pressures. You know, to Steve's point, you know, with the SPR at the lowest level it's been since the mid-1980s. Um, there's not a lot of pressure to push it downward. And so if you're going into this holiday season and you're thinking about that discretionary basket, you referenced earlier some of the retailers having trouble. The challenge here is this smaller pie from the lower income household scenario and the fact that higher energy prices are something that despite efforts to focus on core inflation, the Fed is going to be concerned about higher energy prices. And again, to Josh's point, you have some of these companies in your portfolio, you're benefiting from that. A market being led by higher energy prices, that there's a, a lot of negative repercussions for that, particularly um, as we're coming into a, what is expected to be a, a stronger consumer season. Yeah, you know, Joe, I'm looking at Walmart, for example, uh, down a half percent as we're just thinking about the impact of oil prices. I was looking at some of the retailers, too. I know Macy's included since we've been talking about it. Stock was down about 3%. It's pretty much sitting um, right there now. I also want to hit something with you uh, because I think it's worth following up the ARM IPO in what was a sizzle and now wondering if it's turning into a fizzle uh, because our chart of the day today, Joe, is ARM. Uh, Bernstein initiates it yeah. underperform. I think there's a lot of questions out there about the chip stocks of late. How should we view what's happening here? Mm-hmm. I think it's idiosyncratic when you look at ARM. Um, this is now what's happening over the last couple of trading days, more of a realization that this is a stock that is rich in its valuation. And there are other places you can go in the semiconductor industry. I don't think it's a referendum overall on semis themselves. I am still somewhat optimistic about semis, and I think there's very few themes that you could be optimistic about within the market. But 
certainly you could own Broadcom, which is a much more reasonable valuation, which I own instead of owning Arm. I think the IPO was just perfectly priced, and we knew that the, the demand was going to be strong because you had participants who are customers of Arm who had signaled they were going to be uh, owners of the IPO. In addition to that, the float was very small. So I think you go back, you say to yourself, where are the tailwinds in the market from a thematic standpoint? And it's energy, it's semiconductors and mega caps. And I think those are the three areas where you have the highest degree of confidence, you could find opportunities. But Joe, you made the point last week multiple times that just because oil's going up doesn't mean energy stocks are going to do well. That you need to go maybe a little bit no, further out on the risk curve. I think that's the way you described it uh, in terms of mm -hmm. trying to get that beta out of the or alpha out of uh, the, the energy trade. With, without question. And in fact, you have the spot price of oil up 14.75%, and you have energy equities only up 5.75%. By the way, for the viewers, the spot. Uh, month of crude oil is going to expire in the next couple of days. So keep that in mind. Anything is possible here. You could see a significant spike in the front, but that's not enduring over the course of time. But yes, if you believe that you're going to try and uh, track the spot price of oil, you're not going to get it done with ExxonMobil or Chevron or the large multinationals. You're going to have to accept more risk the risk that's almost associated with owning the futures market, and you're going to have to own high beta energy stocks to try and capture the performance we're seeing here in the futures market. I don't know. I mean, Joe, Exxon's up 1% today. Um, it's not like it's had a, a, a bad run. Three months, it's up near 13%. That's just fine, isn't it? Chevron is probably in the same in the same boat as I pull it up here in front of me now. It's up near one percent. Three months up seven percent. So it's trailed Exxon, but it's not like those stocks aren't doing well. It's no, I didn't say that. But it, de it depends upon what your risk profile was, and I think we made the point on Friday. It was a frustrating day because you saw that the pr spot price of oil was higher, but yet energy equities were down. So we made the observation. Uh, the reasoning behind why you didn't have energy equities tracking with the spot price of oil. And I still believe if you think that you're going to get that return that you're getting in the futures market, you're just not going to find it in ExxonMobil and Chevron. But if your risk profile is a little bit more defensive, then stay with ExxonMobil and Chevron. You'll get some of it, not all of it, though. I mean, energy is the best today, uh, Josh. This is where you're really looking for a pickup trade, right? Yeah, uh, I want to back up what Joe is saying. Of all the energy companies in the S&P 500, most of which are not named uh, Exxon and Chevron, the median performance over the last quarter is plus 17%. It's plus 27% over the last six months. That's versus an S&P 500 that's up 2% and 15% respectively. So huge outperformance from that group after they were really terrible uh, for most of the first half of the year, like almost like a non-event. But to Joe's point, that's to be expected. They don't move on a daily basis in lockstep with the commodities market. Of course they don't. For starters, economically, they don't all benefit to the same degree from higher prices. That's number one. Number two, the earnings drivers. So I bought Rig recently. 
take a look at take a look at how long it, it could take for that sector to reflect both to the upside and the downside the higher commodity price. They're 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 signing three and five year leases for equipment. So we're not talking about like, oh, uh, oil's up today, what's the right day trade? You have to think like an investor in this sector, even if the commodity is moving in both directions, you're not definitely going to get a one-for-one -one representation in, in both sides of that coin. Weiss, you want to take a stab at this one? In yeah. Energy? <clears throat> Did you call it a trade, not an investment? But I mean, obviously, last year, it was... It was a darn good one, and it wasn't necessarily a trade. I mean, if you're in a new sort of paradigm of global oil demand relative to where supply is, doesn't that potentially change? It does. It does, if you believe that. I'm not sure I believe it. It's always been a cyclical trade. We've seen this before. If I can count the number of times in my career, which is way too long, where Al said, okay, we're at 100, we're going 200. I referenced it before. It's always a trade. You know why? Because it's a commodity. And they can't help themselves, the providers, that they see the prices where they are. And it's not just oil, it's copper, it's steel, it's every commodity. And then they begin to produce more. And that's what's going to happen here as well. But that's a loaded term to some degree, isn't it? I mean, just because you say it's a multi-year trade, it could be a multi-year trade. That's exactly, that's exactly the point that yeah. I was going to make just now, is that, you know, I, yep. I, we often sort of give uh, the, the connotation that a trade right. is some sort of extraordinarily short period of time. Josh's point, the point I was going to make to you as well, or at least in the form of a question, is can't that be a multi-year period of time that that trade is going to work? With, without a doubt. So We've I don't know whether that. maybe we need to throw out these these definitions or put up know, a chart, judge. No, yeah, no, we, 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 we've seen that. It's all about supply. It, it is about supply. But supply put up, a, comes put up on. an XLE chart since inception. Look, look, put up. The XLE, for all its flaws, yes, it's very top-heavy. Most uh, S&P ETFs are these days. But inception date was like 1999 or something. Put this chart up. Tell me what you think happens next. It, if, you, if the XLE takes out $100, this is not a, a three-month thing. This could be, sure, it's probably a trade because it's a commodity. I agree with Steve, but... Uh, look at that period, 02 to 07. That's a five-year trade, call it, right? Like, it ends at some point. It doesn't just go up forever. But I think most people would be pretty happy with yeah. a three- or five-year upcycle in, in, in energy you know prices. Many, you know how many times we've heard, not just this, if oil gets above 100, then that's the floor. Right? And now resistance I'm showing you the stocks, the though. Yeah, so, I'm showing you the stocks, but so, I agree. So, I agree. Right. So, look, you just don't know. You don't know how companies spend. But I tell you, whether it's the airlines, which are also commodity, airline seats are commodity, they see demand there, they add more flights, right, more planes. So just be aware of that. Well, I mean, You'll semiconductors in a way are commodities, right. too. I mean, it well, all depends on, on, on how you look at it. It's not like that yeah. cycle lasts forever look, the, either. The best support for the oil trade right now is China has done so much to stimulate the economy, and they're not done. And we're starting to see green shoots there. And that, I think, is the most positive. I don't see the government coming in and buying, replenishing the reserves at 100 bucks or 90 bucks. But at some point, they're going to have to. So unless you see a recession, it's really going to hit demand. We've seen, frankly, an unprecedented period of OPEC hanging together. 
and I think that can continue for a little bit. So yeah, that's why I bought Oxy, which notably is down today in the hottest sector in the market today. But hey, it's still very cheap, and I'm staying there for a while. I didn't buy it thinking it's going to be a week yep. or two weeks or a month. Okay. Coming up, we're going to do our call of the day. It's a retail stock hit with a few price target cuts ahead of earnings next week. Joe owns it, which means we'll get his take. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We get to our call of the day in just a moment, but as so often happens during this program, J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovich has released a new note, uh, and we want to bring you the headlines from it because it's interesting what he's talking about here. Equities are up uh, year-to-date on multiple expansion, he says. We all know that. While real rates and the cost of capital are moving deeper into restrictive territory, history suggests this relationship is becoming increasingly unsustainable, with the S&P 500 multiple overvalued by three to four times versus real rates. Josh, you want to take a stab at what Marco's talking about? It's not necessarily new that he's, you know, questioning the valuation of the overall market. Uh, but here he is again and suggesting yet again that it's simply unsustainable. All of this, of course, coming at a time where we're already worried about, you know, seasonal choppiness and things maybe getting a little bit worse in the market before they get better. Look, we, we came through an earnings season that on the surface looked pretty good. But when you dig beneath the surface and you look at all the retailers that blew up and you look at, you know, how many companies had something other than the consumers hanging in there to say like that number is piling up. And I think I know why the, the cost of, at the pump is going to be a factor for all these consumer discretionary stocks. Like, you're not going to get through this period so long as oil prices remain high, uh, uh, credit card interest rates remain high, um, lending standards tighten, uh, less liquidity in, in buying and selling houses. You're not going to get through this period and have everything just be okay. And I think that it's reasonable for Marco to be reminding us of that point because we really didn't have much of a give back. In, in multiples this, 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 uh, this time around. Now, one thing you could say that's positive is that for the first time, analysts started to raise estimates again for the S&P. But again, that's just on a headline basis. If you look beneath the surface, where did that come from? It's very, very narrowly concentrated toward the AI theme. There's not a lot of that going on across the board. So uh, what is gonna be the thing that makes this sustainable? I guess if margins hold up this quarter and companies have pretty good guidance once again, maybe that'll be the, the way we get through it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, this gets worse before it gets better. That's well, my Weiss, personal opinion. Yeah, Weiss mentioned, I mean, earlier, um, you know, the idea of earnings estimates and whether they're too optimistic or not. Mm -hmm. And we may have to wait multiple weeks to find out, but that's going to be the central question. So speaking of earnings, our call of the day, 
it is Nike. I want to show you that stock, too. Wells Fargo cutting the price target. They cut uh, estimates as well. They do reiterate outperform. Price target to 120 from 130. That is still a significant upside from the 95 and change that it trades at. Now, Joe, you own it. Um, man, this stock has been really questioned uh, in the last couple of months. Yeah, so th th this clearly um, has been one of the worst additions to the quality momentum strategy. It was entered as a new position at the end of July. It's gone straight down. So far this quarter, it's down 12%. That's coming off of 2022 when it was down 29%, and it's down 7% year-to-date. So there's, there's no argument. The technicals are broken. And I think even consistent with what Marco Kalanovich is saying, you could say the same for Nike, where perception doesn't always meet reality. So the perception of Marco's note, right, is that there's this ominous sentiment forming for markets. Well, that doesn't mean in the next three months markets go down. You could be okay for three months and six months later that goes down. And the same is the situation for Nike. Everyone is expecting the, this recovery. But in reality, the recovery is not coming. And I think you have to be humble and candid with yourself to acknowledge the reasons why. This is a company that has 65% revenue exposure outside of the United States. And outside of the United States, that's where the economic weakness is, whether well, it's in why. Europe or whether well, it's in Asia. You well, I'll, I'll pick at what you said for a minute because I, I, would, I would disagree in some respects with the characterization that you make. I mean, you, you talk about sentiment of what Marco's talking about. He's mm -hmm. not talking about sentiment. He's talking about fundamentals. He's talking about valuations being way too high versus where real rates are. Nike's problems, which, which have held the stock back, are not one of sentiment. They're of fundamentals because of the very things you just suggested. Overseas, where Nike no, gets a significant no. part of their business, is weaker. China's been a real mm -hmm. question mark. Okay. That's a problem. The stock's down 18% year to okay. date, not on sentiment, but on fundamentals. Okay, so let me respond also. to that. Let, let Joe respond. I'll, I'll get you in. Let, let me respond to it. And yes, Stephen, they have missed in the last two quarters. And, and again, that's the reality. But just as an example, uh, I saw this morning someone took Nike. Uh, what, what's the note right here from HSB, Wells Fargo? Wells HSBC. Fargo goes to one. Yes, right. Wells Fargo took the price target from 130 to 120. HSBC cut the price and target to 113 do? from 120. Well, they okay, reiterated let, the let finish, I mean, What do you want them to do? Put it on sale? How right. often does that and happen that's on the this, street? No, how often does no, that no, no, happen? No. But, Scott, that's what I'm talking about with sentiment. That's what I'm talking about with perception. Okay, you have to be candid and, hum and humble and say something is wrong with Nike. But everyone that comes on the network, they're going to tell you one thing. Oh, Nike? You want to buy Nike down here because this is a great balance sheet. The valuation is cheapened. It's a proven company. Well, isn't and that that's what the you're same saying? thing overall for the market. No, I'm telling you the stock is broken technically. I'm telling you that the revenue, the global revenue, has headwinds in front of it because 65% of the revenue is coming from the rest of the world. I'd rather own Lululemon where 65% of the revenue is coming from here in the United States. So, no, I'm acknowledging the position's a lousy one. I think Nike has a lot of challenges in front of it. That's the reality. And that's exactly you, okay. what I'm talking about overall. Okay. I, I don't think you can compare Lulu to Nike. Lulu works in what is still a niche market with very little competition and manages it very, very aggressively in terms of keeping that into a niche market versus Nike. Nike is much more 
exposed to the economy because their product line is so broad, their business not just regionally, not just regionally is so broad. So those are the issues. So if you see consumers well, trading, Steve, I, don't down, I don't understand when I don't understand when you say you can't compare the two. No, I just just clarify you can't when you compare say you can't compare the two. It's like you can't, you can't compare a beer company to a soft drink company. They're both in the same space, but they have different dynamics. Right. So Lulu is going to a higher-end consumer in a niche market that has tremendous, tremendous loyalty without much competition. What have you got? Aloe is one, Athletica. They're not real right. substantial competitors. Versus Nike, we're seeing competitors start to encroach on their market share, not significantly, but my point is, is that they are, they are much more an economic animal in terms of their broad exposure than Lulu, who's dealing with a much higher-end consumer who doesn't have to trade down or delay Well, purchasing. you know what you can compare Nike to? Because HSBC but, does it, Adidas and Puma, Joe, yep. where they suggest they prefer both to Nike. I mean, how often have but you heard all, that? But yeah, they're, they're all apparel companies. If I'm an investor or if, if well, I'm a footwear. portfolio manager. They're and footwear I'm, and apparel companies. And, and I'm looking. Okay, they're footwear, they're apparel companies, they're in the consumer discretionary sector. If I'm looking at my potential alt alternatives, I think I've got Under Armour, I've got Nike, I've got Lululemon, I've got Adidas, I've got Puma. Yes, I've got all those companies collectively that I could look at. And quite candidly, I think there's other places as a portfolio manager you could go. You just gave two other examples that I didn't. And certainly, I think, Steve, you would agree, I'd much rather own Lululemon than owning Nike. And that's from someone who owns both, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Let's, um, let, let's move on. Uh, Pippa Stevens has the headlines for us. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Scott. Relief groups say storm-ravaged Libya needs some $70 million in aid to recover from devastated flooding. The U.N. revised the previous death toll from the flood Sunday morning, down from 11,000 to nearly 4,000. The same report says 9,000 people are still missing, but numbers have been difficult to verify. U.N. officials say they're still gathering data on the ground to determine the full cost of the damage. World leaders are meeting this week for the annual United Nations General Assembly Summit. The two-week conference will include 140 heads of state and government who will discuss issues including the war in Ukraine, the floods in Libya, and coups in Africa. President Biden is expected to attend, but other permanent members of the U.N. Security Council are skipping this year. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is also expected to attend and be in person for the first time. And as the General Assembly gets underway, protesters are marching on Wall Street, demanding an end to fossil fuel financing. It comes a day after an estimated 75,000 protesters took to Manhattan to march for the same cause. Many protesters have been taken into custody outside New York's Federal Reserve Bank building. Scott, back to you. Pippa, appreciate that very much. Pippa Stevens up next. A new ETF looking to capitalize on one of the biggest investment trends of this year. Bob Pisani has the details for us in our ETF Edge after the break. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. 
Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, we're back on the half. Let's send to Bob Pisani now with today's ETF Edge. Hey, Bob. Hey, Scotty. Options trading has exploded in the last few years, and recently a particular type of options trading has become popular with retail and institutional traders alike. Zero days to expiration options. Zero DTE, they're called. They're contracts that expire and become void the same day that they're traded. Business is so strong that the ETF industry is getting in on this. Last week saw the launch of the Defiance NASDAQ Enhanced Option Income ETF, QQQY. It's the first ETF to trade in zero data expiry options. Let's talk with the woman in charge of that, Sylvia Jablonski, known her for a long time, CEO of Defiance ETFs. Thanks for joining us. Sylvia, the strategy here is uh, pretty simple. You're harvesting a premium. You're selling puts on the NASDAQ index. That's a bullish call, folks. Give us an example of how this works. How does this ETF use the zero DTE options trade? Sure. Great to see you, Bob. Well, the important thing to remember is that these are options that expire in one day. So we're entering into a trade at the close, and then we're unwinding that trade at the end of the next day's close. So these are index options. They're cash settled. And just a couple things to put out there. No leverage. These are not naked. These are very well clothed <laughs> ETFs. They're backed by treasuries, and they're backed by cash. And those cash and treasuries generate 5% dividend. And then we harvest more premium on a daily basis by selling in the money put. So if the market goes up, yeah. which is what you're looking for here, the put expires worthless, right? Mm -hmm. You keep the premium, and then you distribute a dividend, right? What, what kind of dividend are you looking to distribute? What, what, are you, what are we getting here? Exactly. So on a daily basis, we're shooting for 0 to 1%. On average, on a back test, it looks roughly about 25 bips a day, which extrapolates to about 60% potential income a year, distributed monthly. Potentially. Of course, Potentially, you're, you're assuming, of course. of course, that the market's going in your direction. Right. The market, as long as the market can goes up a little bit, down a little bit, stays flat, we generate some premium on a daily Okay. Basis. It's easy to see why these options have exploded this year. It, it gives active traders a lot more ways to play the market. It's a one-day bet. You win or lose the same day. It's cash settled. Yeah. And you get this dopamine rush if, if you win. But how do you respond to criticisms of these? And I've seen a lot of it, that this encourages market timing and day trading from essentially retail traders. The, the vast majority of people lose money doing this. We know this. Uh, Gary Gensler, the SEC chair, has written about increasing game of trading. What, what do you say about this? So kind of I criticism? think that people are overthinking this one. This is pretty boring in the best possible way. You can do this in an IRA. The risk of holding this ETF is the risk of having exposure to the NASDAQ. The upside is the premium that you generate from the puts. We actually, these, these are collateralized with cash and treasuries. They gain 5%, and then you're selling in the money puts, again, which are cash settled. You can't, no leverage, you can't lose more than you invest, and your risk is really what the underlying index does. Okay, we're going to have a lot more coming up on the zero-day options ETFs with Sylvia on ETF Edge, that's 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time. She's going to be joined by special guest DJ Tierney. He's the director and senior investment portfolio strategist at Schwab Asset Management. DJ will update us on where the flows in ETFs have been in the third quarter, what Schwab is telling its retail clients about trends for the fourth quarter. That's ETFedge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob, good stuff. A very, very hot topic we look forward to seeing in just a bit. Straight ahead, we're gearing up for another big IPO. Instacart prices after the bell today. Our Leslie Picker following the money for us. She'll join us next on The Half in just about two minutes. Dow's up nearly 100. Welcome back to The Halftime Report. Grocery delivery company 
Instacart. Prices in overtime uh, today. The IPO, of course. Leslie Picker joins us now with those details. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Scott. Yeah, another busy week ahead for IPOs. Instacart, as you mentioned, finalizing its price after the bell today. And after hiking the range by $2 a share at the end of last week, it's expected to opt for something at the high end or above that new range, as is typical when the range is boosted. That means Instacart likely to have a valuation around $10 billion or more by the time it starts trading tomorrow. Glavio also opting to increase its marketing range by about $2 a share this morning on strong investor demand. The marketing automation platform is set to make its debut on Wednesday. While both deals have generated a healthy amount of investor demand, Instacart will invariably be a down round and Clavio will be about the same from the levels they each saw in 2021. Successful debuts in this capacity could entice other venture-backed companies staring at their own down rounds to go public as well, Scott. All right. Um, Les, I want you to stay with us. So Weiss. Uh, Leslie points out the down round. Now, you could say, well, that's, you know, a a big disappointment. Or you could say, well, I mean, that's just the market doing what it's supposed to do and correcting itself before you have a public offering that doesn't go really well because it's dramatically overvalued. Right. So if you're a potential investor and you're not investing in the private markets, I spend a lot of time investing in the private markets, uh, you're saying, wow, I've got some super, super smart people that paid $39 billion for this, I'm able to get it at, you know, 75% discount. So that'll create an appetite for it. And then Goldman did such a spectacular job. I mean, truly threaded the needle on ARM. You're going to bet they can do it again. And by the way, their history shows they can do it again. So it sets up pretty nicely. I mean, what Goldman's going through, and I've been through this, I've allocated hundreds of deals when I was on the sell side. You've got to separate the liars from the buyers. Every hedge fund wants it, and they're going to puke it right back to you. But you can't deny 0.72 because it's such a large commission player. However, you're going to allocate to the T-Rows, the Fidelities, et cetera. You're going to give them enough where they care about it, they won't flip it, and they'll have aftermarket buying interest. That's going to happen here. And let's not forget, Instacart is a very profitable company and right now has a lock in that business. But I don't think they have an impregnable moat, which is why I don't particularly like the company. What this does point out, if you go through the reduced valuation, is the headwinds we're going to see in the economy. Because they're fortunate. They can do an IPO. But I can tell you, living in the private markets, so many of these companies are going to go belly up because they can't get funding. They can't get debt. So it's still going to be very, very challenging going forward. But I expect Instacart actually do well because Goldman's there, J.P. Morgan, you know, riding on the sidecar. And so I think it's going to be a good offer. Yeah, Les, I mean, timing's everything. David Costin of Goldman, since we're talking about Goldman, IPO market open for business, um, maybe suggesting a more normalizing backdrop going forward here. Yeah, you point. You have a good point there. Timing is everything. And J.P. Morgan CEO last week, Jamie Dimon, said at a conference that, you know, he wouldn't necessarily call it a down round. He would just say that the last round was overvalued. And that's been one of the main reasons why we've seen this drought over the last 18 months is that companies said, look, I was valued so much more in 2021. I can't go public now. Well, these deals that we're seeing, and, and I would even put Arm in that category because they did an internal private 
situation um, about a month ago. So technically that was a down round as well um, from where SoftBank bought back its stake from its vision fund. Um, but they're showing that it's okay to go public. It's okay to take your medicine. Um, and all that really matters is the aftermarket performance from here. So, I mean, we'll see what happens with these deals if they're able to, to pull off a successful debut like Arm did. Um, but that could be kind of the catalyst that helps other companies say, you know what, this is okay. I can go public too. Yeah. And that would help open the IPO window further. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Um, a bit of a, real, a reality check, no doubt, uh, for founders and uh, venture capitalists uh, the like. Leslie, thank you. We'll, uh, I know you'll be all over this one, and we'll certainly follow you there. Up next, Mike Santoli. He'll be here post-9 with his midday word. We're back on the half right after this. Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli here at the desk with his midday word. I guess if you want to know what's going on today, Apple's up 2 and a third percent. Meta, Alphabet, NVIDIA, yeah. positive. Rates, mixed picture, right? Short ends yeah. up, long ends down yeah. in terms of uh, rates. And just picking up some of the that sort of late determined selling from Friday. And it happened, for the most part, once the European markets closed. So I think you still have this dynamic of a little bit of global malaise feeding into our markets, very watchful of both yields and, uh, and oil prices, and then trying to just figure out uh, if this is anything more than routine. I and mean, if I keep coming back to, you know, we're six weeks into this. Is there anything going on right now that looks like it's off the rails in terms of telling us something nasty about what's to come macro-wise. Not, Not really. really. Now, you're starting to see some fraying around the edges. You'd love to see broader uh, participation on rallies. You'd love to see small caps firm up a little bit. But, uh, you know, you can't have everything. And the cyclical sectors have come in a bit. Uh, you know, whether it's home builders or, uh, or industrials, but it's not really changing the overall picture. Uh, we obviously want to get through the Fed and see if there's any reason we have to reprice the path, but I, it doesn't seem like that's likely. Yeah, can't have everything is okay when we came into a month wondering if we could have anything. So, well, that's right. We'll yeah, see. we started the third quarter with a, you know, momentum of 5% GDP perhaps. Yeah, so we'll see. All right, I'll yeah. see you in a couple hours. Uh, it's Mike Santoli. He'll join us, of course, on Closing Bell. Uh, final trades are next. Closing bell, 3 o'clock Eastern. I hope you'll join me then. Anker Crawford will be with me. Rick Heitzman, too, looking ahead to Instacart and that IPO. And also Freddie Couples, one of the most popular golfers of all time. He's taken some swings at the Live Tour over the last year or so. I'm going to ask him if he thinks that merger between Live and PGA Tour is really going to happen. But I look forward to that uh, with uh, Fred and the gang coming up 3 o'clock on Closing Bell. Final trades, Josh Brown, what do you got? IEO, it's going to keep working this year, I think. Okay, thank you. Shannon? Uh, REITs, uh, rates are peaking, and we think that delinquencies are going to be ring-fenced to the office sector. There's some emerging sectors within REITs that are very interesting. Okay, thank you for that. Joey T. Not everything is so good today, Scott. Take a look at the KRE. It's down one and a quarter percent. JP Morgan is the trade off of that. It is winner-take-all. And J.P. Morgan's the winner. Yeah. Um, Weiss, you've had, you know, look, concerns about regionals. Yep. Go big or go home, some say, when it comes to the banks. What do you got? Yeah, so Goldman Sachs. Like, I think you'll see more of the same, and you'll see a good Instacart IPO. And that will then say the window is open, as we've discussed. Goldman should go high. All right, good stuff. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 
All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 